morning, um, we're going to be looking at a, um, um, a couple passages, and um, uh, I like, uh, I, I had written a note, um, uh, must have been yesterday afternoon or evening this late, when I finally decided what we were going to teach on, and, and I sent her a note with the title so she could get the, the slide together. And, uh, and she said, well, if I don't have to make it, uh, time to make it, excuse me, she said, I could always just use the Cindy Lauper album cover. Um, uh, so I, I'm, I'm game for that. Uh, I love Cindy as much as, as much as the next fellow. Um, but what you find about um, the topic of time is, in reality, it's been woven into so much of what we've said over the last probably year, um, at least the last six months. Um, specifically. So this morning, we're going to be looking a little bit about time. And Amber, if you would come and pass these out for me. Um, we do have four passages we're going to try to get through, but most of them are going to be pretty quick. Thank you very much. Um, and I'm going to read to you just a little bit um, as we kind of get going here. And um, hopefully this is something that will resonate a little bit with you. People have the authority to disciple, to disciple, I'm sorry, sorry, excuse me. People have the authority to disciple people. Families have the authority to disciple families, but nations have the authority to disciple nations. So much of what he is actually wanting to take us into is a point where we, um, where we actually can become a people that impacts everyone around us. And I think that there are layers to this kind of thing, but you cannot separate from the, from the basis of what um, God has called us to be, that it is scriptural that Jesus or God is the desire, thank you, Amber, of the nations, and that it is something within them is longing to know him. And as that is the case, it is our responsibility to be that um, uh, image bearer, that representative, if you will. And I love the fact that, you know, we've said this before, that we're representing Jesus. And everybody's really comfortable with that until the fact that you say, actually, that word is represent. So it's your job to represent God not just to represent. It's not like the Kirby salesman where you knock on the door and you're there on behalf of Kirby. Okay? It's actually where you are an image bearer, and in many cases, you're, now hear me, okay, I know this is on the internet now, so hear me out. You will likely be the first image of God they see. Now that might mess with you, I'm not in any way saying that we're gods. I'm not saying we're equal to God. I'm just simply saying it's our responsibility. What did Jesus say? If you've seen me, you've seen him, the Father. Philip even asked, he said, well, you keep saying that you're here from the Father. Show us the Father. And he said, don't you know that if you've seen me, you've seen him? Why? Because he recognized that it was his responsibility to carry the image. So the challenge is we do live in a culture where God has been misaligned and misrepresented and mischaracterized most cases by the church. In most cases by us. And so we're not only fighting against mis, uh, excuse me, a, a lack of characterization of who God is where the world doesn't really know. But we're also fighting against a mischaracterization where we have displayed him as retributive, where we have displayed him as angry with people, where we have displayed him as having expectations of things you need to get done or accomplish before you can come to him and feel his love. And all of those things, I mean, we do realize that once again, the act of God policy in your insurance is destruction. So when we describe to the world what an act of God is, it's floods, floods, fires, and tornadoes. That's wonderful. 
And in fact, one of the things that I really like, and we're going to talk about this at some point, um, uh, is that when you look at the scripture, um, you find that there are two different words for judgment in the Bible. In the, in the Bible, there are ten different words. Old and New Testament alike, there are ten different combined Greek and Hebrew words that that are translated judgment. Because when I, if I say, if I were to say to you this morning, how many people are excited about the judgment of God? Everybody would be like, ooh, Mother's Day, chill out. <laughs> right? You think the kids are saying, ooh, how many smokers today? Oh, you think the kids? So, one of the things that we have to understand is in the Bible, the judgment of God, that, that wonderful thing that we, that we are totally freaked out about, is primarily based on a Puritan mindset that's not even biblical. Out of the ten words for judgment in the Bible, do you realize that eight of the ten are, uh, uh, eight of the ten are actually defined by restoration? Eight of the ten words for judgment in the Bible are defined as a fire that restores, not a fire that destroys or punishes. Interestingly enough, you know what the other two are? The other two are only used for how we judge one another as human beings. Out of ten, eight of them mean to restore. All eight of those are the ways that he judges. The only judge that is judgment that is to punish, to be retributive, to uh, um, to bring some type of destruction is the way we judge. So even the fact that he sits on the judgment throne, believe me, I've seen heaven's gates open on earth. I know what's happening. Like if you've done wrong, you know, his salvation comes in little white packages. So if you've done that business, then what happens is all the angels, Esther included, does one of these, which later was uh, uh, ended up becoming uh, associated to gabbing, but that's something totally different. Uh, and so they, you know, do one of these, cover their eyes, and they send you down to the hell place, and that's called the judgment throne. So our mind about judgment is all just right there, when in reality it's always restoration. Always restoration. Every time he comes to us, even in the moments where we have utterly failed, he's never looking to bring fire to us to correct us. He's always looking to bring fire to restore us. And the, the, the thing is, what we have to understand is there really isn't any aspect in him that wants us to be for correct for correction's sake. He wants it. It's not so you can be a pristine trophy. It's so that you can be well. He restores you and makes you whole because anything less than that is not whole at all. The more time we spend in the timeless dimension, we begin to think based on a generational or timeless view of what God wants to do. This viewpoint affects most areas of our life, including the frustration of why is something taking so long. Now, let's put a pin there. Maybe I'm alone. Maybe I'm the only one in the room that's ever thought this. But I have had a tendency in the past to think, okay, God, I believe you that you want to do X, Y, and Z. I believe you that you want to bless me, touch me, do whatever. Why is it taking so long? Why is, you know, uh, I'm feeling this pain. Why is it taking so long to get through this? I'm in a dry season or a wilderness time or whatever we've called them in the past. Uh, why is it taking so long? The thing is, even that for us is to be an identifier that the way we view time hasn't been restored yet. Because the more time we spend in the timeless dimension, which in the time, I, I know that sounds really weird. It sounds like we're going to beam me up Scotty and go Star Trek. That's not what that's talking about. The timeless dimension is just in the spirit. 
the more acclimated we become to it. You realize there's no time in the Spirit. It's eternal. So the more time we spend in the Spirit, the more acclimated we become to the timeless realm. And as we become acclimated to the timeless realm, we can honestly exist. And this is where he's wanting to take us. We can honestly exist in a life that says we have all the time we need for him to do everything he wants to do. I don't have to figure it out. I don't have to hurry it. I don't have to get like really, really anointed. I don't have to run to every single conference I can find for people to lay hands on me so I can become a better pastor, so I can save all of these pastors, and maybe all of Coatesville while it's at it, even though we don't really know if Coatesville's really going to come back next year. You know what I mean? But it's my job to save them all because I'm a pastor, and I have to be like Adrian Developer, and I have to do all this stuff because they're all going to go to hell, and God's got a throne. He's going to judge them, and they're going to burn. That's the way my mind works, right? I've got to hurry up. I've got a lot to do. I've got to get stuff done. And then all of a sudden, squirrel. And then I've got to get back because I've got all this stuff going on, and I've got to hurry. I've got to get stuff done, right? That's the thing. And in reality, that's how our minds work all the time. And we think all of it, whether it is that we have to hurry because I've got I've to do this stuff for him or um, – or, or I've got to hurry because I've got all this stuff to accomplish in life. And I honestly do believe that as we spend more and more and more and more and more time in the timeless dimension where we can slow down and where we can actually become contemplative, where we can actually become a people that can meditate on his promises and where we can actually be a, be a people that in the moments yesterday, Kyle and I were talking, we both had like one of the more frustrating days that we've had in a long time. Uh, yesterday, it was just one, it wasn't bad. It wasn't like nothing major happened. It wasn't like a car burnt down in the church parking lot. That was two weeks ago. Um, just in case anybody's curious, the black spot out there in the gravel is where an HHR used to be. Uh, a Chevy HHR burnt to the ground in our parking lot. Um, I got a call on a Friday night. Um, we, were, we were loading in the uh, first Friday, and I got a call uh, from the fire department that there's a fire at the church. Now, when you get a call that there's a fire at your church, they quickly need to describe what that means. Like, don't don't put a period there. There should be a comma. <laughs> and he's uh, told us that somebody was driving down 240 and their car caught on fire and they decided to pull in the church parking lot and leave it while it burnt to the ground. So by the time the cops got here, the front of the car was completely gone. The hood was burnt off. I mean, like, there wasn't one anymore. The interior was completely gone. Thank God that the back of the car was still was still salvageable so they could see the license plate and track down the, the abandoner. Um, and uh, But, yeah, this so first of all, thank you, Father, for protection and safety on our property because, obviously, um, if it was an engine fire, you know, explosion, combustion, all kinds of stuff, it's possible. Um, and so everything's fine. Everything was great. So it wasn't one of those days yesterday, but it was just a day where every little, a lot of little things went wrong. A lot of little things like, and that happened yesterday. But it was really funny because it was almost like Cox and I tag team took turns being the one that could meditate properly. Like there would be a moment where I'd be like, okay, the pool's leaking again. And, and they just left. And it's leaking, and we're going to lose 30 gallons of water that we just put in the tank. And, and Cox would be like, well, you know what? It's fine. It's not, uh, we probably wouldn't be in it today anyway. They're going to be able to come back this weekend. They're going to get it taken care of. And you know what? We thank you, Lord, for the fact that we can even have a pool. We thank you that we have this. Thank you that we can endure this. And, and immediately, you know, would translate me back into the way I was supposed to be. And then something would happen with her, and, um, and, and I would do the same. It was really interesting back and forth. And honestly, I promise you that eight months ago or a year ago, yesterday would have been a bad day. Yesterday was not a bad day. Isn't that weird? And I know that doesn't sound spiritual at all. You didn't live it. <laughs> right? When you're having a bad day, one of the dumbest things that somebody can tell you is, oh, you just need to get spiritual. To me, the most spiritual thing that I can do is not bow my knee to circumstances and emotions or the negativity of things. 
one of the spiritual things I can do is walk in thanksgiving, which leads to the gate of peace so that I can exist in a place that doesn't throw me off. Because even in the midst of being out there wanting to, like, create another hole in the pew when I shoved a wrench through it, um, uh, with some prophetic language probably to boot, uh, the, the reality of it is, at that moment, all it took was stopping and I could feel his presence. That's how we're supposed to live. That's where we're supposed to be. And that's kindness in nature. If I surrender the ability to measure time, I will inherit a rest that is more, more interested in doing it right rather than doing it quickly. Let me say that again. If I surrender the ability to measure time, if I surrender my desire to be in a hurry, if I surrender the thing that says I need to hurry up and get through this, only then will I inherit a rest that is more interested in doing it right than doing it quickly. An inch wide and a mile deep. That's what he called us to. He hasn't called us to roots that go far, but stay on the surface. He's called us to go deep. And any time it goes deep, you've got to slow down. If those roots are going to go deep, you've got to slow down. You've got to be able to just say, Father, take your time and do what you want to do in me. <clears throat> Only in that space can we rejoice in the process an inch wide and a mile deep. Because we recognize that depth is the goal. The depth of our roots, the depth of his heart, the depth of our relationship with him and with one another, and ultimately depth of our devotion to him and his purpose. I honestly believe this gives us permission to slow down, to find rest, and to be in childlike wonder, and to live a contemplative lifestyle that is the only one we can truly live. That is the life we can live. That is the life we can live when we slow down and find what does rest look like in the midst of this. So look with me, if you will, at Daniel chapter 7. We're just going to hit a couple of high points here because I felt like we needed to start with this. Because if you ask most of the church right now, we're living in the last days. Most of the church right now, and probably the rest of the world too, um, says that we're living in the last days. I just completely disagree. Because I don't think the church is ready. So that's another teaching for another day. But I think the reality of it is that Jesus is going to come back because the church is really, really ready, not because the world is really, really bad. If we think Jesus is going to come back because the world has gotten really dark, then we think the enemy has way too much sway in how God does things and when God does things. And the enemy is never in control of God's time. Find me a time that God waited for things to get bad for, for it to be like, oh, and this is perfect timing. No, he's always looking for a restoration. He's always looking for things to be what he intended. And he's never, ever, ever, ever focused on the enemy for what it is he wants to accomplish. It just doesn't work that way. We do that. We focus on the enemy. We actually give the enemy way too much attention, in my opinion. I think, I just think we do. So notice here in this Daniel 7 passage, um, he shall speak the great words of the Most High and wear out the saints of the Most High. So one of the things that we have to understand is in the last days, one of the things that's going to happen that's going to be a challenge for us as believers is there's going to be an attempt to wear us out. Do you wear someone out when they're resting? Or do you wear somebody out when they're spinning their wheels? I'm just going to give you a little bit of freedom. You don't have to get 10 people saved today because he's not coming back tomorrow. You don't have to go door to door knocking today because Jesus isn't going to split the sky in the morning. Sorry, his lips aren't on the trumpet. I heard that prophetic word since I was a kid. And my mom's heard that prophetic word since she was a kid. And my grandma's heard that prophetic word since she was a kid. And do you realize the disciples thought his lips was on, were on the trumpet? The disciples thought they were going to get raptured. So this isn't a new thought. So when he says this, the first thing we have to understand is what we need to fight against is being worn out. How do you fight against being worn out? Being at rest. And he says that he's going to try to wear out the saints to think to change the times and laws. Now, anytime, do you realize that I heard Christians say that this was daylight savings time? 
recently heard teaching that said that we knew it was the last days because in the last days mankind was going to try to change the time. And so because my, mankind is going to daylight savings time and now we have to fall back and spring forward an hour, we know it's the last days. And oh, by the way, Obama's in the White House. So there's a really good chance at that time, we lived in Indiana at the time. So, you know, he's the Antichrist. They're going to change the time. Gorbachev's gone, so we don't have the guy with the mark anymore. So we don't have to worry about him. But Putin's a pretty sketchy guy as well. And then you've always got the Pope. He's, he's in question. He wears big hats. I mean, clearly that's not what's going on. This is what people say. Turn on. No, don't. Never mind. Don't do that. But, it, it, you know, it, it, is, it is amazing what you can find on Christian television at about 11 o'clock at night. I'll just put it that way. And what you find is that so much of it is so natural in thinking. So what they say is that, the, that at the end, in the last days, there's going to be mankind is going to try to change the seasons and the times. And I've always been told that that was, do you realize that when, like, if there's ever a time where it's really, really cold in the summer or hot in the winter, I've had people tell me, well, you know, that the seasons are changing. There's wars, rumors of wars. We got that daylight savings time. It's messing with people. I hope work today. Spring forward. And now they're trying, and now the seasons are changing. Well, that's not what that means. In fact, what it actually is saying is the world system, which is what the Antichrist and is what's the prophet and is what the mark of the beast represents. Do you realize that what John says about the Antichrist is he calls them Antichrists? And he says that, that there are many of them. And actually, at the time that, that James and John are writing the Bible, they said they were at work in the church. So I'm sorry, John Hagee can tell you whatever he wants. But according to the Bible, the Antichrist is not a person, nor is it somebody that's new to the scene. Bad eschatology has messed up the church. And what we have to understand is any time a movie with Kirk Cameron gives you the idea of what the end of days is going to look like, you probably need to reconsider it. And if they decided that that wasn't big budget enough, now we'll go get Nicolas Cage. He's a real guy. He can let us know how this is going to turn out. It's ridiculous. But that's what we say. Do you realize that actually what it's talking about is the wearing out of the saints is going to be specifically tied to the changing of times and seasons. And what's going to happen is the world system, the world around us, the culture around us is going to tell us that we have to hurry. They're going to tell us that we have to speed up. They're going to, have, they're going to tell us that we have to get things done, get things done, get things done, get things done. And in doing so, they're going to try to change the times and the seasons or control the times. Hasn't, when's the last time that you had somebody talk to you and they're talking to you about how it just seems like time is going faster? Guess what, folks? That's this. Doesn't have anything to do with daylight savings time. Has everything to do with the Babylonian culture that is around us that is telling us we got to hurry. Why? Because any good business person, when you ask them how much do you want to produce this year, the answer is always more than last. Any hardworking, red-blooded American when you ask them, how much money do you want to make this year? More than last year. Why? Look, do you realize how Pharaoh that is? How Egyptian that is? Why? Because Pharaoh, even the idea that he had to enslave the Hebrews who lived in peace with the Egyptians for years, he enslaved them because he had an insatiable hunger for more. And it came at the cost of lives. And we live in a consumer-driven society that is very much the same. Everything's it. When's the last time you went to a restaurant that was closed on Sunday and didn't get ticked off about it? I do. I will go to a restaurant. I'm like, oh, it's Thursday, but I can go to Monday or whatever day. You know, you go to, let's go to, to 
you know, one of those local places where it's like Wendy's or on Wendy's as far as I'm concerned. Like literally nothing. I just became one of the few that you do have to go to Taco Bell. Um, and so you go somewhere on a Monday in Greencastle and it's like, oh, they're closed. And we get frustrated about it. Why? Because we live in a consumer-driven society. In fact, let me take it one step further. This isn't on the notes, but Doug said I could say this. Uh, when you look at what we've actually found in our society, it's gotten so bad now that specifically Sundays, which is supposed to be, I'm not saying Sunday has to be a day of rest, but hypothetically speaking, a day of rest for everybody is a good idea. Do you realize now that what you find when you go out on a Sunday or the hours that everybody else doesn't want to work, who works those hours in most of the retailers? So what have we put on the altar of our consumerism? Our young ones. Because I have to go to ATM on Sunday. Because I need to get my glasses corrected on Sunday. So our life is changing with how many people. You get what I'm saying? And I'm not critical about working on Sundays. That's not my point. I'm not saying that we need to be Seventh-day Adventists. I'm just simply saying, isn't it strange what we're willing to sacrifice in the name of more? And it's amazing to me that I would never dream of breaking, thou shalt not commit murder, thou shalt not commit adultery. And I, then, and I take it as a badge of honor that I regularly don't take a day of rest. I would never in a million years break the other nine commandments, but having a day of rest before him or having a lifestyle where I can be in rest, we take that as a badge of honor that we work 90 hours a week because we don't like doing so. So what this actually says is, is that in that last day, there's going to be that. Uh, look with me, if you will, at Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving, with all praying also for us, that God would open to us doors, utterance to speak, to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am in bonds, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom, note that, towards them that are without, redeeming the time. Now, there's a couple things to mention here. Number one, uh, I guess you could say that it's meaning without wisdom. <laughs> Walk in wisdom to those that are without. Maybe it's meaning without wisdom, I don't know. But I do think more specifically, walk in wisdom to those that aren't in the fold, that aren't in your family. As you exchange with people, the way we treat one another, the way we associate with people who are not in our family or tribe or whatever, we need to really make sure that we're exercising wisdom. More so than ever. Why? Because there is a, a measure where God is going to be our mouths to speak things on behalf of him and our faces to shine forth his glory. Much like Moses, seeing the face of God, what it does is it creates something in your face and your countenance where you have the ability to showcase his glory. But you have to understand that there is a measure of wisdom that you need to walk in, recognizing that it is his intention for us to redeem the times. Now, there's a lot to that concept. Um, there's two different times, in fact, the other times in Ephesians, and it's listed here, that it mentions to redeem the times. The thing that I think is the most important for us is that we have to understand that especially in Western Christendom, we have wholeheartedly sacrificed generational legacy so that we can have personal destiny. We have, in within Christendom, the thought has always become, you need to see, see your purpose fulfilled for your life. And in doing so, how willing have we been to slow down, recognizing that I don't have to do it all because I, my job is to create a platform for the next generation, both naturally and spiritually, to stand on to go higher. And that in many ways, what, it's not so much about me just figuring out how to fight the fight. Oftentimes, do you realize, I'll just reiterate because this is something you should know, the reason testimonies on Thursday night are so important is not so that somebody just gets the confidence to come to 
understanding what God's done in their life. If you're not getting breakthrough from their testimony, you're doing it wrong, not them. If you're not inheriting breakthrough, if you're not inheriting what it is God has done in somebody else around you, then you're missing part of what he's afforded for you. Because I shouldn't have to fight the same battles, at least all of the same battles, that the spiritual generation before me had to fight. They garnered freedom so that I could inherit freedom. Not garnered freedom so that I could have to, well, sometimes you just have to live it for yourself, sonny. Well, if we handled spiritually in the church freedom the same way we handle it in our country, we would believe that our youth of today have to fight the British again. Why? Because they did that, and there was great sacrifice given. But the point is so that then the next generations can inherit freedom, not have to break through again. So why do we have the mentality that that I want to I want to be able to to work hard and put uh, put aside some inheritance or some type of think about how many people buy into I mean all the things of you've got to have a success or you've got to have an IRA and you've got to have some retirement you've got to have a portfolio and you've got to live in some um, some area they've got an HOA you've got you've got to have that of thing around you all the time where this is what success looks like. And in reality, I believe honestly that so many of our youth, so many of our kids have been put on the sacrifice at this altar. Because the truth of it is, yes, maybe you gave them a better life. Maybe we've given them a better life because they could go to college and we couldn't, or because they could go to a better college or have a car that we couldn't have and all those things. But at the end of the day, where do we land spiritually so that we can have them inherit what we've known of the Lord so that our youth don't have to live in anxiety because I figured out how to become free from anxiety. I want my our kids to have peace more than I want them to have an IRA. HOA is a home ownership program. And I guarantee you there's not an HOA in Facebook. Put it, you can drag any car home you want and put it in your front yard. Nobody's going to say anything. If they come try to tell you, they're going to get introduced to Bessie, which is the double bridge shotgun. You just look and tell them, you know, they're going to put in a thing on the board. I don't know, it's describing, they were actually saving us time. They ain't putting anything on the board in here. So that's the concept. So what does it mean for us to redeem the time? We're literally, it becomes our responsibility and we have the authority. Now, this is going to mess with you. To actually redeem or take back time where time no longer controls us, but we control time. What does it mean for time to not control us, but for us to control time? Well, number one, I have to understand that I don't have to do everything in my life. I have to understand that it's my responsibility to empower the generation that comes after me to do more than I have done, not to be limited by what I accomplish. How do I make sure that if I am able to get past panic attacks, that I allow them to inherit the freedom of no panic attacks? How do I make sure that if I have seen what it means, I'm now two weeks sober from, don't add, sober from social media and movies. And I say sober because it's, feels good when I get sober. Two weeks. And I don't know if you know me, but I love the news. I would get up every morning and read the news, and I really like it. I had about 10 different news sites that I would go to and read because I like to get informed. And I'm not against being informed, but I was, I, I can honestly tell you, it was, it was damaging to my soul. It was at a point where it was not good. I'm not saying you shouldn't be informed. I was not informed. I was enraged. I was just frustrated about it and irritated about it all the time. That's just not good. And if that costs me a Hello Kitty video on Twitter or Facebook, then, you know, I think that's okay. And what I found is that that kind of thing, how do we then allow our youth to inherit that? So 
where we can find peace and they can live in peace. That's redeeming the time. You find this used again in, um, and it's attributed with wisdom again, in the fruit of the Spirit. Once again, how many times would you think about the fruit of the Spirit is goodness and righteousness and truth, and it's associated to redeeming the time. Why? Because it is the point that we move into a place where we are no longer bound as slaves to calendars and clocks. And I think that that means across the board. I think that that means if you don't have 10 minutes in your day to sit in silence and listen to the voice of the Lord, you need to reprioritize. If your TV is on more hours in the day than you think about God, throw it out. We do not have to bow our knee to what Babylon says is normal. And the more time we can spend in the spirit and more time we can spend outside of time, he's rewiring within us these things that think we have to hurry. You know, I talked to somebody the other day. They said that they had 30 shows a week that they DVR'd. 30 shows a week. 30 shows a week. Let's say they're a half hour each. Where do you have time to watch 15 hours of DVR a week? And honestly, what I was cool with, I'm like, you know what? If they do have time to watch 15 hours of DVR a week, I'm good with that. As long as within that, that's not all of their time. Because part of it, maybe they're doing rest right. If they can watch New Girl and be in rest, God bless them. You get my point? But that's how do we redeem it? How do we take it back and say, I'm not going to be bound by this? So I'd like to read with you some notes that I made. Noah, Noah shared with you guys a couple weeks ago that I've been studying on Einstein. Because Noah tells you what I do. Um, Einstein had a math physics professor that believed he could move fast enough to slow down time. So, Einstein had a physics professor that believed he could move fast enough to actually slow down time. This is called the time-space continuum. The time-space continuum is the platform on which the theory of relativity is based. So, without the time-space continuum that actually uh, uh, is the platform or the basis or the foundation, if you will, uh, Einstein wouldn't have a theory of relativity. The thing that's really interesting about this is, uh, Eli didn't bring his transfer in today, but if he had, uh, what I would have showed you is, on, they can take this and on these transfers, what they'll do is on each sheet, they'll put a ball in the center, and that's a, a being of mass, and then they take another one and put it here, and then they actually roll it, uh, roll another ball. What that will do is, this mass being here will actually press the sheet or the transferring down because it's heavier. And in doing so, it will change the trajectory of where the ball would roll if it normally would roll. It's no longer going to roll directly straight. It's going to roll at a bent angle and oftentimes be pulled toward the other being of mass. And the question is, why does this have anything to do with this and why are you showing this on Mother's Day? And you really probably don't know. It has nothing to do with Mother's Day. But... This is called the time-space continuum. Einstein included this in the theory of relativity, and the only way they could measure the time-space continuum was actually by sending a rocket into space with an atomic clock on it. So there's no way to measure whether we can actually move faster than time because we can't move that fast. So they took a rocket and put an uh, atomic clock on it. Now, this was done, I actually researched how atomic clocks work and why. Because I wanted to understand why an atomic clock is permitted to measure time typically that we cannot measure otherwise. An atomic clock measures time by atoms. And it actually takes atoms and move, measures their movement back and forth, almost like a hand to the grandfather clock, like the pendulum. You know, the, the pendulum will move back and forth. That's what atoms do inside an atomic clock. Here's an interesting thing. Atoms move at the rate of 9,192,631,000 times per second. I'll just make that short and say 9 billion times in a second is how fast the atoms move back and forth in that atomic clock. The point is this is how 
absolutely accurate it is. In fact, the expected error rate of an atomic clock is one second in 100 million years. The expected error rate is one second in 100 million years. So the point of this is they sent this atomic clock into another dimension, and as that happened, it moved fast enough that when the atomic clock got back, it was slower or slightly behind the clocks here on Earth. Why? Because it moved faster than the speed of light. In another dimension, it was able to move at such a high rate of speed that time no longer controlled it. Time here didn't slow down. Time there didn't necessarily speed up. It just was able to move through that dimension. So what actually I think he's trying to teach us is he's trying to bring us into a place where the more time we spend in his presence, the less bound by and enslaved by the thought of, I've got to hurry up, I've got to do this, I've got to accomplish this, even in spiritual things that we find to be very, very holy. I've got to spend two hours a day in prayer. I've got to do, I've got to read my Bible. I, I, I spent years, if I didn't spend two hours a day in the Word, if I spent an hour and 45 minutes, I was insane for a week. Why? Because I'm a pastor, I've got to be in the Word, I've got to do this, I've got to do this, I've got to do this. That's not what he wants. And he's actually calling us to a lifestyle of peace whereby we can understand generationally that he's trying to cause our kids to be those that know him beyond how I know him. That the generations that he, he is, that in resurrection, as we've been discussing, in resurrection, he actually deals with time to such a high degree that there is no limitations to what time can control because Jesus actually broke those lines when he was resurrected and then we get to inherit his resurrection. And so while I do believe clearly that we are to be a people that are to be timely, you know me, you know that I like being on time. I'm not talking about being callous. What I'm talking about is that we do have to start thinking generationally and we have to understand that so often it's going to look like the same. So I'm going to give you one last verse and then we'll be done for today. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1 says, Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. Now, we talked a few weeks ago about this principle of meditating and about how important it was to be a people that meditate. And that um, it's always been fascinating to me that, that I could tell a church that you need to meditate on the Lord and there'd be no issue. But as soon as I would tell you that we're to practice meditation, everybody would freak out. You literally change a word from a noun to a verb and everybody gets nervous. So what he says is we're to meditate on his law. Now that can mean a lot of different things, but suffice to say that his law is his spoken word over us. It's what he has said, um, whether it's scripture, whether it is the promises he's given us. But it actually says that day and night we're to meditate on that, that that should be a constant reservoir that we draw from. But I'd like to look with you, uh, if we can, just as we close at this verse 1 passage, because something I've never seen before that makes absolutely no sense is the progression of what you're to do. Now, I'd like to be clear, because it does say that we're not to be in the, in the counsel of ungodly. We're not to be in the way of sinners. We're not to be in the seat of the scornful. That's absolutely accurate. But what I think it does identify for us is the progression or the pathway that we're to move. Notice this and think about how the Lord has brought us in the last few years or maybe even months. Blessed is the man that walks, sits, no, excuse me, stands, and then sits. Wouldn't you think, based on my sexual liberalism as usual, that, that you would learn first to sit up, stand, and then learn to walk. Spiritual maturity actually goes the opposite way in that we first learn to walk. He teaches us 
to go forward on the journey with him. He invites us in the Romans to journey with him. Then he just asks us if we're willing to just stand on what we've said about him. Then he teaches us to sit, to be at his table and rest. So the progression is actually completely backwards of everything I was taught. I was taught that the more striving I did, the prouder God was. The harder I worked at it. There's actually, that's the challenge we have with faith, is that there's no striving or work involved. If you're working, you're not being faith. Faith is defined as an obedient surrender. So it's interesting to me because I know we call it the walk of faith, but it could actually be defined better as the sitting of faith. Where you sit and where you govern from that point, where you're not moved from that point. And I think it's really interesting because the follow-up of this talks about what your internal world is going to look like if you find this peace at his table that is rest, where you abide in him. And I'm not saying that there's not activity. You know, it's funny. You realize the reason most pastors don't talk like this is because they're afraid it's going to affect their tenure. Because as soon as they tell you to rest, they're going to, they're, they're afraid you're going to sleep in on Sunday. It's true. I literally have had someone tell me, well, I don't talk about the fact that we need to just rest in him. Because as soon as I say that, people are going to feel like they don't need to come to church. They need to be, you know, really making sure we're doing this. What it actually says is from the seat of rest, we will then delight in the law of the Lord. And in his law, will we meditate day and night. And we will become, here's the reward. We will become like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf will not wither and everything we do is going to prosper. That is what happens from the abiding seat of rest. From the abiding seat of rest, we will be like a tree that is planted by the river that brings fruit in season and our leaves won't wither and everything we do will prosper. That's who we are. And that's what he's actually bringing us to, to where we are, we don't have to worry about dry seasons because we're planted in a riverbank. We don't have to worry about whether we'll bear fruit because the fruit that we bear bears fruit in season and out of season. We don't have to worry about what it looks like that that whether we'll be functional or not because everything we do prospers because we're no longer having to practice. We're no longer working to try to be something. We are something. So I really believe he's calling us in this season to be more than ever a people that much like that Hannah taught, that as we spend time with him, as we're in his presence, as we function with him, as we're in the spirit, as we can be aware of his presence around us, even when we're not on our face in intercession with Don Cotter playing at volume and playing out of tune. That's easy. I could, li- I think I could be, I think somebody could be stabbing me and if you put on show me your face, I could, I would be there. Like, no worries, peace would come. But the truth of it is, how do we find that when we're just walking out on the deck, driving to work, standing alone, or freaking out? Have a really, really, really bad day. How do we find that where we just abide with him and everything we do is functional? Everything we do, because why? We're planted by a river. The thing I do know, because we have kids that run through our car, the thing I do know is the most important thing to a tree that's planted by the river is roots that go deep, because if not, the river will take off. He's actually trying to get us to a point where our roots can go deep enough that when the river gets there, 
because you got really, really, really revived. I mean, and then the, the wettest season you've ever lived in was followed by the driest season you've ever lived in. He's talking about how do I reach your people who are the destitute and the overcome. So, Father, we thank you. We ask that you would continue, Lord, to lead us, continue to to cause our, our hearts to be stirred. We recognize that the only place that, that we are known is with you. With you is, is that place where we're known, where, where we can understand, where we can have our perspective changed, and where we can have our, our understanding about who we are realigned. We ask you, Father, that you would help us to understand that there is no reason to hurry that you have given us all the time necessary to accomplish everything that you want to accomplish through us, and your version of success looks so drastically different than our version of success. We don't have to have a bigger ministry. We don't have to have a better job. We don't have to have uh, more success in whatever world of business or family or church or any other circle that we exist in for you to deem it as what you've called us to be. But, Father, you just want us to be a people who know you, who walk with you, and who are well and whole. And so, Father, I bless that today. I bless that pathway today and ask that you would help lead us down. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, just as a point of reminder, um, there is no, uh, we're having prayer only on Thursday night in case anybody wants to meet on the main campus. And Sunday, next Sunday, we will not be having morning service. We're having a worship night at 6 o'clock. So no Sunday morning service next Sunday. We're doing worship night at 6. And this coming Thursday, prayer only this way, probably on Saturday before uh, the Missouri State game, and um, and so we'll drop out early Sunday morning and then have worship at 6 p.m., okay? God bless you. Everybody have a great, a great day.